ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Creating Structure podcast number 12. Great to have you. Thanks for your support. I'm really pleased. It's going to be a great conversation today with Alfonso Lopez from Centec. Alfonso, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Pleased to be pleased to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So I know some of our audience will know you, and of course, many won't. So um, why don't you tell us who you are, where you're from, a little bit about your background, and we'll get into our discussion. I mean, yeah, sure. So um, I'm the CEO of Centec Architectural Systems. I founded Centec about 15 years ago, and uh, it's been interesting. John, I remember you and I met shortly before the before I formed the company. And if I recall right, you stamped one of our first projects. It was a project in New York for, uh, I think it was the Court of International Trade. Yeah, and I it, actually had forgotten about that, Alfonso. And I, when you and I were talking earlier, like last year, I looked back and we have a job folder for you guys. And I thought, oh. <laughs> yeah. So it was that was interesting. We uh, ASI has just been acquired at that point, and we were extremely lucky because the, there were a number of projects that they basically left undone or uncompleted. That was one of them. We had another project in Reno, really nice uh, private residence in Reno that we completed. So we had two or three projects that we picked up from from ASI at that point. But going back to your to your question, I was born in Chile in the mid fifties, <laughs> quite a while ago, uh, and um, I was raised and, and went went to high school in Chile, and left. There was a lot of political turmoil in the mid seventies, and my entire family emigrated to Venezuela. So we settled in Venezuela, and I went to college. I decided to. Um, pursue an, an engineering and it was a, a mechanical engineer. I got a, a received a mechanical engineering degree. It's very different from uh, degrees in the US. It was a five year program with really intense emphasis on physics and mathematics. Mm-hmm. So I was well prepared for, for graduate school. And I, I did uh, go to graduate. I uh, went to graduate, graduate school to UCLA. I started the program there. I believe it was now all these dates are plus or minus a couple of years, John. Just <laughs> so uh, I started UCLA in 19, um, if I recall right, 1981, and graduated with an MS in engineering. In uh, it, it was a, a the, the program does no longer exist, and it was uh, mechanics and structures. Okay, mechanics. You know, very different. Uh, we had I had two years of of. Uh, intense training without using computers uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, it was down to first principles and really understanding structural behavior which uh, very different from today's education but I, I think it really served me well throughout my career so i actually started i my graduate advisor uh, richard nelson knew a couple of companies and uh, he recommended that i, I speak I talked to uh, the guys at Temcor. They were looking for an engineer. And I ended up working, going there and started working with them as a Fortran programmer. Now, oh, this was, <laughs> they had a, the, you know, at, at UCLA, we did a lot of pro- program with, programs with cards. Yeah. And at, um, at Temcor, we had a VAX 750, which there are no PCs at that point. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. Yeah, let I got to interject here for a minute. Sure, no problem. The older part of our audience is going to be chuckling right now about punch cards. But I, <laughs> I got to tell you, my worst class in college, I graduated with a civil engineering degree, was Fortran programming. I absolutely despised it. And that machine, ding, 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 punching those punch cards and loading yeah. them. <laughs> it was awful. So... So you, you started doing Fortran programming? Yes, I, I started doing, it was, it was post, they, they had a, um, a canned uh, FEA analysis package and we did a lot of uh, post-processor 
programming for analysis of steel and aluminum structures. And, and what did the company do? So Temcor was actually the company no longer is, exists, but they build large spring, large span lattice, aluminum lattice structures for sports arenas, theme park applications, telescope structures. Um, I don't know if you heard about the Arecibo radio telescope. I have not. It was, it's a it's it's a radio you know, as opposed to to um, it's it's basically a large ear listening to sounds in in the universe and it, it was about a mile in diameter and it had a, a number of cables that suspended this enclosure that we worked on famous project and uh, it's a shame the project the the, the entire structure actually, actually collapsed about three months ago. Not was nothing that we had worked on, but it had been around for about fifty years. So hmm. it tells you how old you you get as you <laughs> to see some of these structures change and and disappear. So we did um, just to give you an example: uh, uni- uh, uh, sports arenas at the University of Connecticut, uh, University of Hawaii, um, Baylor University. We did projects in France projects in China, uh, a little bit of glass. I, I was mostly clear span structures, mm-hmm. but we did a, a tremendous amount of research. <clears throat> so uh, at that point, um, the ASC code really didn't have an awful lot of information about wind pressures on bluff bodies or, or domes or dome-like structures. So we did an awful lot of research in trying to understand behavior and how loads behave depending on, on the shape and, and uh, rise to span ratio. Uh, we also did a lot of, uh, you know, the interesting, the unlike most structural engineering design, the strength of all the structures we designed was based on form. Mm-hmm. So it was not based on weight. It was not based on size of members. It was based on it was uh, based on form or geometry. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of a lot of research at that point, and we developed a couple of patents on new systems. And uh, it, the failure mode for the, those type of systems is snap through buckling. So basically, the curvature reverses at a certain point depending on the rise to span ratio, mm-hmm. on the geometry frequency, the length of the members, the moment of area, moment of inertia. There's a number of variables that affected and uh, we were able to come up with closed form formulas actually where we knew if a if a structure with a given uh, curvature we could predict uh, failure modes without doing any computer or non-linear computer programming so it was it was great did a lot of testing so published a few papers and about the third year into my Second year into my career uh, at Temcor, I was I actually grew. I wasn't sure that engineer engineering was my thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I w- went back to school. I got, I got a degree in e- economics and uh, got a master's degree in economics, and uh, it was great. It actually served me well. I came back to engineering, but I learned a lot about pro- probability. It was basically. I agree with emphasis in econometrics. Yeah. Study a lot of history of economic thought, Milton Friedman, you know, all these famous economists. So it was great for to broaden my perspective on life, but also great for, for my engineering career because applied, applied statistics and applied probabilities, what these codes of standard practice are, are all about. You know, so you're telling me you could have been a hedge fund manager or a structural engineer. <laughs> you got it. You know, the, yeah, we'll talk more about that, I, I know, but I think when you get something like a degree in economics and a degree in engineering, that diversification and convergence leads to some fascinating outcomes that you would probably wouldn't predict, but I can only imagine how enriching that was. Oh, absolutely. Um, just give you an example. We 
And I'll give you a simple example how we've used it, this at, at Semtech. So you have, you know, when you perform steel design, you have all the formulas and, and all the code related uh, formulas are based on testing. Mm-hmm. And so you can, and what we've done at Semtech is we're taking glass fins, for example, and we perform a number of iterations. So we know the variables that control buckling on a glass fin. So you can perform a number of iterations, varying the depth, varying the height, and you can use these variables that you know will determine buckling and develop close, close form formulas to, uh, using probability or, or statistics. So it, it's, it's applicable. You know, economists use this probability to try to develop assumptions and try to predict behavior. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the assumptions don't make a lot of sense. But in engineering, everything makes sense. Everything is you know, predictable. You know what, what variables are, affect behavior. So it's very easy to take those variables, perform your test, numerical testing or testing, and come up with, with solutions using statistics. Yeah, the, the macro, the psychology of macroeconomics is quite different from the psychology of a building structure or a component. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, um, and by the way, to our audience, you, you probably have already discerned, um, Alfonso and I are both structural engineers, but really slightly different backgrounds, quite different educational backgrounds. I'm a, I've got a bachelor's in civil engineering, but both united in a nu- numerous ways, including the specialty structural engineering aspect that really is prevalent in our industry. Mike, one of my questions is, as you're, you're talking about your background, you know, where you're from, your education, um, what led you, so I met you at Conservatech, where you mm-hmm. were domes, yeah. and what led you to start Centech 15 years ago? Well, it's a great question. How much, how much time do we have, John? <laughs> <laughs> to that, let's hold that question. Um, <laughs> no, you- I, I think I, I, can, I can answer it. You know, um, and, and it t- the question ties with, you know, I have, I'm not done with uh, talking about my background. Please. But, um, uh, I would, what I'd like to do is kind of, kind of give you a little bit of a different perspective in, te- in terms of um, what my career has all about. Yeah. Setting aside the different, different experiences. So in, in the, the way I see it, it has been a quest of le- for learning. I like that. And uh, there's two di- distinct areas. One of them is uh, engineering knowledge, and the other one is business skills. Okay. I, I call them skills, not knowledge. You, you know, and in engineering, in, in the area of engineering, you have on one, on one side structural engineering, which is, I like to talk a little bit about that because it's a very, a lot of people think about it just building design, and I, I have a very broad perspective of, of what structural engineer, engineering should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have manufacture, manufacturing and manufacturing processes. You know, if you're going to be an engineering in this in, engineer in this industry, you need to understand manufacturing. You need to understand tolerances. You need to understand if the stuff that you're designing will work. Mm-hmm. You need to understand cost. <laughs> There's a number of variables that are extremely important to be a, success, a successful engineer, not just the structural part, but understanding what I call manufacturability. Mm-hmm. You also need to understand construction, construction installation, construction tolerances. What does it take to build this stuff? Crane, cranes, you know, manual labor, all everything that goes into building these type of structures. Mm-hmm. I think to be successful today in today's world, you also be, you need to be well-versed, but you need to understand the computer technology and its capabilities. You know, it's extremely important. You know, I, I'm a strong proponent of first principles design mm-hmm. for people to understand, be able to understand how structures behave using a napkin and coming up with ideas on a napkin. And, but, and, go t- ahead. and tell our audience what first principles means. Okay, so... Um, First principles design in structural engineering is is for this most simple definition would be to set aside your your computer 
forget about FEA modelings, forget about any computer program, and develop an understanding of how the structure behaves, behaves by using a set of engineering assumptions. Mm-hmm. That can be done at any level with the most complex structures. You can understand behavior by just close formulas, understanding the loads and predicting. I mean, the Eiffel Tower, all these marvels of, of engineering were not designed with computer systems. <laughs> people, people, and you can, and you know, it's it's important because number one, it gives you an idea of whether what you have designed makes sense, mm-hmm. whether you, uh, it gives you a direction in terms of what you're designing, and it gives you a much better feeling for structural behavior. Mm-hmm. If you just if you just develop a model and you change variables, you will never, and you, you're tied to your computer, you will never develop that sense of an understanding of, or true understanding of structural behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I interrupted you and asked you no to- No problem. First principle. So, so, so I was talking about the, the, my quest for knowledge. Mm-hmm. I talked about an, an engineering knowledge. And then on the same side, on, on, the, on, the, on the other side of the coin is business skills. Mm-hmm. And the most important one is, man, you know, in our industry, every single one of our companies is a high-paced, high project-driven environment. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to manage not one, but 10 or 15 projects. You need to be able to manage them successfully. You need to be able to communicate with your clients. You need to be able to motivate your troops to meet deadlines because construction is all about deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many projects have you had where the GC comes, the architect comes, and they're, they're already two months behind schedule by the time it comes to your to signing your contract? And even though you, you know what your deadlines are, in many cases you make the choice. You know, we will make the commitment and we'll make things happen. And it's all about getting everybody within the organization driving in the same direction to meet these goals. Very well said. Yeah. So, and then that, so managing, managing people, managing resources, managing projects, you know, project manager, project management is, and all from an engineering perspective, it's important that you, that engineers develop those skills. You don't have to be an expert PM but you need to be able to communicate with your drafters. You need to be able to communicate with your clients. You need to be able to communicate with manufacturing, mm-hmm. communicate with installers. So it's extremely important to develop those communication skills. And so, and the third leg of this tool is what I call business relationships. Okay. So you have knowledge, engineering knowledge, you have business skills, and the third leg is, is what I call uh, business relationships. And over a 30-plus car- uh, year career, I was able to develop extremely good friendships, great relationships with people that influenced my, my career, and uh, people I can call on, uh, and that helped me. I knew when I had developed all, these, all the, those three legs of the stool, I was ready to build my own company mm-hmm. so you, you the question was <laughs> how did you start Centec? and the answer is i it came to a point in my career where i knew i was ready where the companies i was working for became a little bit too small for what i was searching for <laughs> and i i wanted to try things on, on my own so you felt so, like that you had these three legs of the stool you had the engineering knowledge the communication, the business relationships. Um, and so I was ready to kind of seems like a natural progression then. Yes. Good. So, so um, when, when I first started, and, and let's go over the, the, this is 15 years ago when we, I formed Santec. Yeah. Um, you, you know, the thought was to develop, it, actually I formed the company as an engineering consulting firm. Mm-hmm. It was not an engineer engineered products company. And, and that was the initial thought, just to create, I have this wealth of knowledge. I have a lot of relationships throughout the industry. Let me create a, a, um, 
a company that provides those engineering services. I, I had regist engineering registrations in about 25 states. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a natural way, and I felt I was comfortable with it. Uh, about a year or two years into doing that, I started. I got a, a couple of requests, and I started providing engineered products. So you know, I cannot say I planned it, John. I wish I could say I had the vision, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it didn't happen that way. It happened I, being at the, the right place at the right time, being prepared to react, yeah. and seeing the value of the opportunity was is what really happened. Did you, when you got those requests, I, I mean, keep going there. Like, so when you got the product requests, did you then like third party those out or did you say, well, let me go rent some manufacturing space? How did it evolve? No, we did rent uh, a small warehouse. And, uh, you know, I knew that in able to be, in a, if, we, if I was going to do it, I needed to control the quality, I needed to control the time frame. Mm -hmm. if, if I was the, if 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 there were highly specialized machine components, I, of course I would source them out. But in any support structure, aluminum, steel, stainless steel, I had the knowledge, I had the expertise, and I knew it would be a lot more cost competitive if I if I opened my own shop. So I, I we did the engineering and we did most of the manufacturing of the components that we were we were selling. Were you consulting as well, or did you make that change immediately? No, we I, a couple of the projects kind of overlapped, but uh, it was fairly things happened fairly quickly. And in one of those, you know, you you you're caught on one of those waves. <laughs> and what happened, John, is that on the third year, after three years that we have opened the, the business. So let me go back for a second and talk a little bit about the business model. So. My concept was, and I had learned from both Temco and Conservative, that the best approach is not have inside sales people, but to develop a network of sales reps. So on the third year, I contacted I, some of the, the old contacts I have. A lot of the guys had trust on me, knew what I, what I could do. And uh, I built a, a network of reps during the third year in business. Oh. And so, and we actually had a rep meeting <laughs> in Austin, Texas, that third year, year in business. But uh, I think more importantly, and what really changed the growth path of, our, of, of Centig was a relationship with Dorma Glass. Okay. So, so the third year in business, I was approached by Dorma and they were looking for a business partner in the U.S. Dorma, and you're familiar with Dorma. They, they manufacture closers. They manufacture the door hardware. And they're, they're huge. They're one of the largest uh, <clears throat> manufacturers of hardware in the, in the hardware, door hardware in the world. Where they had, they had this line of structural glass fittings that they wanted to bring to the U.S., but they, they needed somebody to partner with because they didn't have the engineer engineering expertise and the know-how to you know apply use all this, this componentry on, on on glass structures so we signed an agreement and it was just a, a game changer dorma has a tr tremendous <laughs> marketing muscle mm -hmm. you know they have, they have a thousand specification writers they have contacts throughout the country and you know we were riding their, the, the the wave, uh, so to speak, of their of their uh, this this large machinery uh, marketing machine, mm -hmm. and they helped us grow the business. And they also gave Centec instant credibility. Mm -hmm. So, for example, on the third year in business, we were able to land. Uh, a pro, you know, one of one of the, one of the largest projects in the company's history at, that, at, that, at until about five six years ago, uh, and it was the uh, free, the new Freedom Tower project in, okay. in New York. Wow! So, if you think about it, what three year old company <laughs> can land a pro, uh, a project like that with uh, little, little little business experience that we had at that point? And it was basically the credibility that, that the Dorma name came, brought to our company. 
Yeah. So they help us grow. They help us get established throughout the throughout the throughout the country. They help us open markets. Uh, you know that we w- couldn't have opened without them, and it benefited them as well. Mm-hmm. But it, it established the Centec name in specifications throughout the country. Sounds like a great collaboration, a real collaborative effort. It was. It was unfortunate uh, about um, five years into the relationship, uh, there was a change in ownership at at Dorma in Germany, and they decided to exit. They they looked at all the different lines and and profitability of all the different lines, and they decided to exit the market. So we departed in in good terms, but, you know, we ended up developing our own fittings. So you started a consulting company, you got requests to do some material work, you pivoted and did that, and then you landed the Dorma uh, distributorship, partnership, now you've got Freedom Tower. What did you do on the Freedom Tower? We did the, on Tower 1, we did the cable net at the base, there's on all four sides of the tower. There's a, a, there's a cable net above the entrances. So we did the cable nets on, on all four sides of, the, of that tower. The cable net. Was, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a great ex- experience. It was a blast design application with, uh, you know, and you're, you're working with the port authority. You're working with a couple of consulting engineering firms. And so it was a real collaborative effort that through a span of uh, four or five years. Yeah. Terrific. Was that a separate contract or were you working with Benson or uh, who were you working with? No, at that point, we, all our projects, not at that point, all our projects throughout the company's history have been through a glazing company. Okay. And American Architectural at that point was still a bit uh, in business and, and we have, we had the contract. Uh, Tishman was the GC and we got the, the contract through American Architectural. Interesting. Okay. So this is, keep, keep going. This is interesting. So we're year three, you talk about the Dorma relationship. So this is the evolution of Centec, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and just stepping, kind of summarizing what I, what I said, we had established a set of uh, architectural representatives. We, we set the, and, and we were basically selling quote-unquote, point-supported structures. Mm-hmm. And in, year, in I think about the fourth year into the, uh, after we had formed the company, we had a, a project in New York for a police precinct. And the poli- this police precinct needed a structure, they wanted to have a structured glass wall. But we knew that it could not be, it, it had to be bullet resistant. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we were not going to build a bullet resistant point supported glass wall. Mm-hmm. So we had to come up with a with a with a different system and we created a shelf supported structure structurally glazed glass fin wall without any point supports. If you compare that project to the ones we, we to the technology that we have today, it was really really crude in terms of the connections. So the connections were really visible. But it was the first project that we did without point point supports using structural silicon and glass, a large glass fin applications. Hmm. So this simple project gave us by need, we had to come up with a solution. And that solution actually evolved into one of our key main product lines. So after we we completed that project, you know, there's a, a number of changes that have happened within the structured glass marketplace. Number one, there's very few projects nowadays that are built with point-supported systems. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of the, the structures that are being built nowadays have, have what we call hidden connections. Uh, the size of the of the of the glass panels that go into these, these structures have changed has changed dramatically. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> used to be five feet wide by 10, and that was a big panel. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays we're building 20, 22 foot tall, 30 foot tall glass panels. So, so we had to develop the technology. We had to accept and understand architectural preferences. Mm-hmm. And we have to change our product lines 
to follow architectural uh, architectural preferences to make sure we will stay and using today's technology, the latest technology. So that's how the company has grown, John. If you take a look, if I had, if the company's main product line was still point supported glass, mm -hmm. the company would not exist nowadays. That, that line is 10% of, 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 sorry. It's okay. <laughs> that line is 10% of our, represents less than 10% of our revenue nowadays. Yeah. It's a huge change. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think the, and I knew that from, from all my, my business experience in order to grow a company, you have to stay at the leading edge of technology. You have to constantly innovate. You have to at least try to become the market leader and not follow others in terms of products or, or services. You want to innovate and you want to become known for innovation. You want, you want to become known for good service and um, you know, establishing uh, re uh, good relationships. That's the, the name of the game. Yeah, I like that. Not following somebody else. Innovate, innovate, innovate. You Absolutely. Now, you have innovation, but you have to back it up with execution. Yeah. You have to back it up with quality. You are as good as your, as you, as your last prompt. That's the way it works in this business. You're as good as your last project. You know what? And I love that statement. I, I had a, a, a non-competing engineer professional who is asked me about a guy he had interviewed today that used to work here years ago, the guy I've known since college. He said, so do you think 2021 is going to be a good year? And I said, I don't know. I'm only as good as my next project. <laughs> so, yeah. I said, you know, backlog is good. There's plenty of opportunity, but I, I agree with you. Um, people, you need to be able to execute. And if you can't execute, people are going to move on to other yeah. Other companies. Yeah. So that brings me to to the to back to engineering, John. Hmm. Uh, while working at Conservatech and working with Steve, which you, you met there, mm -hmm. Steve introduced at that point. This is 16, 17 years ago. Parametric design technology, and you know AutoCAD was still strong at that point. But um, when Steve came to Centec, this is six years ago, we, we, we set a plan to completely change the way we do engineering and engineering drawings. And a lot of the projects that we've done over the last three, four years, again, we couldn't have done if we, had, if we hadn't had that, that vision of uh, integrating engineering and, and de develop standards and coming up with solid approach that, that uses per parametric design technology. Why don't you explain parametric design technology briefly for our audience? Of course. Um, so I, I think to understand it best, you, if you, it's easier to go back and, and let's talk first about AutoCAD. Okay. And the way AutoCAD works, it's a basically a computer program that allows you to draw inside the computer. Right. And you know, you, there's a number of tools, there's a number of um, simplifications or, or fast, fast tools that you can use. But at the end of the day, with AutoCAD, you're drawing, you're doing your drawings instead of doing them on the, on the on a board, you're doing them on, on the PC. Parametric design technology is a little bit different. Uh, what you do first is create a model, a 3D model of the structure that you're, you're designing. Then you take that model and develop shop drawings or approval drawings, shop drawings from, so you have, you have this, this large model and it's typically subdivided in what we call assemblies. And each, each assembly then relates to a number of shop drawings, and, and you can develop standard parts, standard that you that you basically build your assemblies with standard components. Mm -hmm. Well, the beauty of parametric design technology is that if you change any dimension on your model, if you change the the opening dimension, 
and you have everything modeled, all the shop drawings that are associated with that model are changed automatically. Mm -hmm. So it's, it really simplifies. If once you have everything established, once you have developed your standards, it does a number of things. Number one, simplifies design. It allows you to design more complex structures with, with certainty, mm -hmm. with, with accuracy. It eliminates errors. You know, you, you, you can check for interferences. You can do everything in your 3D models. And don't, you know that your, your drawings will reflect that model. So with parametric design, we're building the intelligence into the program first, and it's creating the drawings, the geometries from the intelligence, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and can you then use that in your company or in other companies, it, depending on what tool you're using? Do you use that to go straight to machine language, straight to shop? We don't, but it can. And that's the, the that's the, uh, Main, one of the main reasons these programs were developed. I see. So we we're not we we don't use them that way. We use it to develop our, all our drawings. All but the... we haven't taken that step. Got you. Okay. So so if, if you think about it, John, the key to success in our in our businesses, number one, being able to read the market and develop develop products that are consistent with current preferences and technology. Number two, we talked about the, the capacity or ability of the company to execute and perform the work. The, 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 the ability of the company to manage the work and effectively communicate. And to perform all these tasks, you need highly qualified people. And that's one of the most difficult tasks that managers now, nowadays have, finding good people, recruiting people, and I'm talking engineers, project managers, retaining good people, mm -hmm. and then motivating people. <laughs> it's very different uh, to motivate people that, that, that are nowadays in their 30s than it was when you and I were, were in, our, in our 30s. Everybody, in my mind, I, it might be just perspective, but everybody that had a different uh, work ethic hmm. 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and people... In, like to enjoy the outdoors, you know, the, the, the mindset has, has changed. Uh, the millennials are not what we, what we were. They're, they're not bright people. We have really good people working at, a, at, our, at, our, at our company, but the, the values are, are different. And you need to find and understand what motivates them and, and create an environment within the, within the company that's conducive to growth and, and keeps them motivated. We could spend an entire podcast just on those last few points you made. Read the market, execute and perform the work, or how about an entire session just on attracting, retaining people? And I'm going to have, in fact, one of my pod, one of my podcast listeners, he'll know who he is when I mention this. He said to me, you know, John, I've listened to every podcast. I really like it. My only comment is, can you get some millennials on there so we can learn more about millennials? Cause you got a lot of old dudes on there, you know, <laughs> but I think, I think the quote was um, it's seven o'clock at night. You're a baby boomer. Where is the baby boomer still in the office? It's seven o'clock at night. You're a millennial. Where are you? You're enjoying beers with your friends and living yeah. life, you know, and it, so we've done ourselves a disservice in some ways to build an infrastructure in a company that was like, well, whatever the commitment takes, that's what you're going to do versus, well, how do I now employ somebody who wants a lifestyle and still wants to do substantive, meaningful work? And I think what you do and what we do in this industry is substantive, meaningful work. Yeah, that's a good, good point. So, so, John, if you don't mind, I'd like to interject that when we start... Uh, at the beginning of the past podcast, we spoke briefly about structural engineering. Yeah, yeah, I want to hear about. I, I want to give you my my perspective. So a lot of a lot of people view structural engineers, and and you know when you talk to architects, it, it's just you know the design of building components or the design the design of building structures. And before we talked about my my view, I like to define 
what structural engineer, engineering means to me. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complex science or, or discipline. If you think about it, at, at the basic level, you have statics. Mm -hmm. And that's just simply understanding stress levels and the formation under, under applied loads and what most of, of us learning in school. And you take it, you take it up, a, up a notch and then you have analysis of loads and statistics and probability of occurrence. So that's, that's another, another very uh, distinct area. Then in terms of behavior, again, another level of complexity, you have nonlinear analysis. And then here's cable design, buckling, buck, and you know, whether it's member buckling or overall structural buckling. And you're you're moving away now from code guidelines as you as you as you increase complexity, mm -hmm. and then another level of complexity up. You have dynamic and vib vibration and fatigue behavior. Mm -hmm. So again, you're moving away from code code and, and code requirements, and associated with dynamic is resonant behavior, vortex induced vibration, all these phenomena that very few engineers are familiar with, but are real. I've seen it on structures that we've designed, mm -hmm. and you have to account for them when you're looking at uh, designing structures in high wind areas. And you keep going up in the level of complexity, now you, you get into impact load and impulse loads, which, again, they, they require a lot more, more complex analysis. Mm -hmm. And then you have, at the micro level, understanding of how all these materials behave how do they interact corrosion with corrosion or how they glass does glass behave at a, at a micro level you have all these other fields that are related to engineering such as acoustics um, glass technology coatings uh, glass design technology you know which involves a completely different set of parameters you, you're talking about redundant behavior and how you design design for glass so you have on one side, basic structural engineering knowledge, and you have general knowledge of engineers. That's a must to be able to to be a, a become a successful structural engineer. Mm -hmm. And then, once you, and, and I don't I, I don't think any, everybody needs to achieve high level of degree, but you have to have a basic understanding of all these steps. When you get to a level, I think you can really become a creative become what I think structural, structural engineers should be, which is viewing structural engineering, engineering as an art form. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that there's a, a high degree of creativity that, that goes into, into proper or good designs, such as ways of minimizing uh, connections of materials, using form to develop strength as opposed to more material, mm -hmm. uh, developing new technology, developing new products. All this creative takes a tremendous amount of creative, creative energy and is in many ways an, an art form. And then when you take all this and you, you meet with architects and architects have a design vision, they, 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 they know what they want, but they have no clue how to get there. And, I'm sorry for all, you have to, I'm not talking down about architects, but <laughs> you know, there's great, I've met a lot of great architects throughout my career and, and collaborated with a number of them, but they lack that intimate knowledge of structural behavior. And to me, the, 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 a lot of the projects that we do, we are involved early during the design process and it's all about collaboration and finding creative ways of helping architects develop that vision to understand what, what's possible with creative thinking and uh, the, the knowledge-based design. Yeah, I, you know, I agree. I, I like that comment about, you know, I, I felt that way for years. How about this concept? The more knowledge we have in a particular field, the more constrained we often are into, well, we can't do that. And what I love about visionary architects, and that's why they're architects, mm -hmm. they're, they know a lot about many things, but they can't necessarily be intimate about one thing. So they say, well, 
let's do this. Let's cantilever it this way. Let's make the fin this deep. Let's make the glass this tall. Well, you can't do that. Well, if you can't do it, I'll go find an engineer who can. And there are creative engineers out there who can do that. That's the beauty yeah. of the collaboration, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've made this point about, I love this comment, Alfonso, structural engineering as an art form. And many of our listeners will be like, what? What are you talking about? Because it's this marriage of science and art and all those other tangible and intangible things you mentioned. So I don't know if you were wanting to develop that further. Did you have any other comments about structural engineering as an art form? No, I think I think I just wanted to mention the, the creative thinking that goes into that, you know, it's for to be successful in this field, it does take a tremendous amount of creative thinking to develop products. Uh, is you know you have to have this holistic understanding of what how the project the products are going to be used, and step outside the box with with pencil and paper and come up with solutions that uh, if if you if you if you don't use that creative part of your brain you will not be able to achieve or develop. Yeah, yeah. That when I first started in the field that made that part of the, my brain hurt on a regular basis. <laughs> I feel like the older we get, the more mental muscle we build in that way. And it kind of becomes second nature, but it does take time to develop that creative kind of thought. I think structural engineering, in fact, as an art form, you and I talked about this uh, briefly prior, it, it becomes more of a way of life and a way of thinking, a, a mindset and thought process than something we do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, but it's interesting, you were talking about how we've evolved and that mindset has changed, has changed throughout my career. Uh, uh, the other change that I've seen in, in the way I approach business is my approach to le leading people. Okay. So, when I, when I first started at, at Tempcore, and I guess by, you know, it, was, it wasn't a cutthroat business, but it was very competitive. There's a, a lot of politics and a lot of demands on getting things done. And you react to that, to that and I became a very autocratic leader, leader mm -hmm. at the very, very beginning of my career. Mm -hmm. You know, get, getting things done, I got things done, but I, I can assure you, a lot of people that reported to me were not very happy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's evolved over time. And um, I, I really think that you get a lot more out of people by motivating them, by explaining the goals and make sure that they embrace the, the goals and they understand a, a direction by, you know, by, by clearly setting expectations. And, you know, how many people... I, and, and I, I've seen it throughout my career. A lot of people can want to do a good job. They 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 want to be they want to be challenged. And if you don't communicate expectations, they're not going to perform. And in fact, I have seen throughout my career a number of examples of people where you raise the bar, you challenge them, and they're they're they perform and they're surprised themselves. But things the things that they they were able to do by just uh, being, being challenged. So, so that, that has evolved. I really become more, um, yeah, I don't know if you read it. I forgot the name of the author. It's called Servant Leadership. Yes, I have. Yeah. So, you know, it, I, I, I've gravitated more towards motivation. I've gravitated more, more about setting environments that are conducive to high performance mm -hmm. and growth and learning as opposed to you know, being the, more of the autocratic uh, leader. And has that evolution just happened over the decades? Uh, it has, John. It, it, it took me about uh, three decades decades to get there. <laughs> but but the but the style of leadership, because I started in the curtain wall business in 1984, and the style of leadership then was very corporate, very competitive. You know autocratic. It wasn't as collaborative. So you actually answered a question before I was going to ask it, which I love. You, you said you like to create learning environments. So 
you also talked about equipping people. So would you say in this process from, from a leadership perspective, are you, are you more asking questions, uh, providing learning tools and, and, and then letting people step into that? Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great question, John. And I think the best example is the decision-making process. And th throughout the business day, where there's a number of decisions that are made by, by my team by, and by people that report to me. And it's very simple to say, do this, take this step, call this guy, let's go ahead and forget about that. Yeah. But it's a lot, it's a lot, you provide a growth opportunity if you ask questions. And if you lead them and let them come to the, to the right conclusions and guide them, and pretty soon they, they I, I, it's not that they adopt your, your way of thinking or your decision-making process, mm -hmm. but they learn what's important and they, let, they learn to make those, those decisions on their own. So I think that's key, you know, instead of allowing them, empowering them, allowing to make their own decisions while guiding, guiding them to get there. I think you just uh, established a great recruiting platform for Centec. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a technical professional looking <laughs> for an opportunity, work with this guy. <laughs> That's really, really good. Have you, um, you, you mentioned your learning journey, your quest for learning. Um, were there any, I, I was fascinated by that phrase early on. You said, I'd like to talk about my, the, my learning quest. You also described it. Uh, to me prior to the show as your learning journey. Um, was there any other points you wanted to make about that? Or do you feel yeah, like... Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that have influenced, influenced me okay. on my career. My wife being probably the most important one. She has this thirst for learning, John, that, you know, all the year we've been married now 30, 38 years, and it has never stopped. From I love... So, you know, it's contagious. <laughs> so she has, a, and she not only has, uh, I have learned from her, but she has also been extremely encouraging throughout, throughout my career. Uh -huh. I, I think, you know, if you step back and, and you go back and say, would I do every, every, anything different? Or what's important, what important steps have I taken throughout my career? And it has been rolling up my sleeves and, uh, learning about all different areas and facets of, of the of the industry that we're in i've installed structures i've been at job sites i've been in, in the shop floor you know, i understand how things are made and that's extremely important an important part of the of the learning process you have I, i've also been fortunate to be associated with great engineers throughout throughout my career yeah you know we, we mentioned you you mentioned uh, you know, when we were talking earlier about, about structural design and, you know, understanding basic principles. And I, I, I met a couple of, of engineers throughout my career that truly understood that concept. Mm -hmm. John Ragged and Westwind Lab. We, we perform a number of these dozens of wind tunnel tests on, on, and full-scale tests on structures, trying to, to understand behavior. And John could take a could develop some of these form. You know, he did aeroelastic stability studies of large span, some of the longest um, bridges in the in the world were designed by him. And this is a on a wind tunnel test that he had in his garage. This is not RWDI. <laughs> this is a very low tech, intense, very very simple uh, uh, approach to design, but you know, use, using, again, a, a lot of understanding of structural behavior. So he was one that really influ influenced my career early on. And uh, the same thing with the design of, of, uh, of um, or the use of statistics in, just give you an example, the low design. So if you're going to do a pick, and we had huge picks you know these are 300 300 foot tall structures and you're going to perform a pick and you can use statistics to develop with some with certainty the best time and the best the best day of the week to perform the pick mm -hmm. uh, safely 
looking at, looking at meteorological data. That's so it. those are examples of, of areas where John really helped me. And Michael Ludwig would be the, the other uh, huge influence in my career. Michael is, a, you know, I met him when he was at Dougherty McFarland, McFarland and Partners 12 years ago. And uh, his creative instinct and ability to step up outside the box and design glass structures has been a huge influence in, in my career. Mm -hmm. And then people that report to me. You know, you always look at outside sources, but a lot of people that report to me have changed the direction of my career. John, Colin Combrick, David Dunham, just Steve Ducote, which which you met, a lot of these guys, the energy that they bring to the, to the company. They talk, they talk to me and they tell me, Alfonso, this is not the right approach. How about trying this? They have the presence and confidence to, to talk to me and, you know, establish that dialogue and, and make decisions in a collaborative way as opposed to me just giving direction. Well, that's good that you've created an environment that they feel comfortable approaching you that way. That yeah. that speaks a lot to you. And and kudos to you for talking about the influence of your wife. And I, I, I have to say that too, you know, I've, I have failed a number of times to publicly acknowledge um, the influence my wife has had on me and and I, the last time I said, you know, I'm never going to do that again. I, she's been the one influence on me it, from a create, like you say, from a creative thinking, from an encouragement. And let's say any spouse, husband or wife, whose spouse develops a business, especially those who are engineers, were wired a little differently. It, it, they get they get special affirmation because it takes a lot of commitment to support that process. I mean, starting a business, we've had a number of folks on here who own their own businesses and it, it's not easy. It's not easy on a marriage. It's, it's not easy on a family and, and uh, they're just invaluable. So absolutely to you. And it takes years, John, it takes, you know, you, you, you start your business and it for the first four or five years, it's a mom, even though it's an engineering firm, it's a mom and pop oper operation. Yeah. And, but then it, it has, Centec has evolved to a professionally managed organization mm -hmm. for a period of 15, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And Don was a huge influence. You know, I, I didn't mention him early. Don Brown. Yeah. He came into a, to the company and we had, it has been a true friendship that we've developed since my days at Conservative. And he truly, helped me and we had a lot of fun along the way by the way so this, that's you, you know and we always tell I, he always tells the story and it's actually true we worked together for over 10 years and we never had an argument hmm. we always resolved problems talking to each we disagreed we had strong disagreements hmm. but we never had a strong argument where we you know did, did not come to a, to a uh, resolution that's but right. he brought he brought a and, and you, you cannot do things on, on your own. Uh, it, it's impossible to grow a business and, and do it on your own, especially mm -hmm. when you have manufacture, manufacturing plants, especially when you have engineering and you're dealing with, with installers and subcontracts. You, you need help. Yeah. And, and brought, uh, Don brought consistency. He brought structure to the company. He really helped us grow and take, take us to a next level. Uh, Alfonso, when Don came as a professional manager, did you subscribe to any particular uh, type of uh, organizational structure like like the entrepreneurial operating system or the e-myth operating system or any of those or strategic coach? Or did you just look at the DNA of Centec and of you and Don and the people and say, what works best for us? I think the, the latter, you know, the, the latter one, we, we looked at the DNA of, we had worked together for a long time and uh, we knew what, what we're both good at. And Don is extremely good at finance. He's good at oper operations. He's good at organizing teams. He's good at planning. He's good at managing project management functions and dealing with, with, with our clients. And I, I knew that I, I was best served by driving the engineering, then by developing the new technology. 
and by taking on the sales function with all, all my established relationships. So yeah. we knew the areas that we wanted to work or dedicate our energies to, and that's what we did. And regardless of titles, whatever, you know, we, we knew what areas we were wanted to be responsible for and put all our energies in. Yeah, you know, if you aligned that with uh, Dan Sullivan and Strategic Coach, he labels that type of uh, alignment unique ability, a person's unique ability, the thing that they're not just good at, but they bring the most value. They look forward to it. They bring energy to the role. It has a big impact, not only internally, but externally. And it really can multiply the effectiveness of a company. Um, so Don is no longer there, right? No, he retired uh, December, last December. Just last December? Yes. <laughs> oh my, good. A yeah. shout out to Don, a Buckeye, by the way. Thank you very much. Because one of my favorite stories when he lived in uh in texas was every fall he would slap his ohio state magnet strip on his garage door next to the aggies and all the <laughs> said they had a polite war on the street about who was the better football team <laughs> stuff um do you still have sales reps or do you handle that all yourself no we do so we have we don't have as many as we had when we started the company, we have the over the years we have developed some pretty strong relationships with some most of the large glazing contractors throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So we did away with a few of, of uh, our rep agreements or, or, or reps, but uh, we left some of the really we have some really strong reps uh, throughout the country in California, Texas the DC, Virginia, Maryland area, yeah. uh, Boston. So we kept a few of the, of the strongest ones. And your manufacturing is in San Antonio, right? Austin, Texas. Austin, my apologies. Yeah, no problem. Two completely different cities. It's a great, great town. It is, I hear it's a great town. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, I, I think ideal for, especially for attracting talent. You know, a, a lot of people from California, a lot of people want to move to Austin. Yeah. So it was an ideal place to attract, attract good people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a couple of quick questions, if you don't mind, as we get towards the end, do you, what, do you do anything for hobby or recreation that you like to share anything fun outside? Sure. <laughs> I play tennis and, uh, you know, all my, all, all my daughters, my entire family plays tennis and we, we played since they were little and it really is it's a family sport. I played it for, since I was, a a young kid and uh, I really enjoy still play two or three times, three times a week. Uh-huh. That's so, good. And then I played chess with my daughters uh, and some of my friends online. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I admire you. Chess is a tough game. <laughs> it's really enjoyable. And there's a lot of parallel between chess and, and uh, business and life. So it, it's, it's an enjoyable game. Uh, I have an attention span at times that's good enough, but typically my attention spans about the same as a lightning bug. So I have a hard time with chess, you know? <laughs> so uh, one more question. I, I've asked many of our guests about this. One of the things I admire about Centec and what you and your team has done is you have a social media presence, which is not always typical in our field. Um, any any thoughts on the effectiveness that you guys are active on Instagram? I think I see you on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Any any comments about that and effectiveness of it? I think it's been it's become an extremely important like platform, an extremely important tool to attract people. Mm -hmm. I think it's a it's a it's a way of getting out your voice, of letting people who you know who you are, of establishing communication. John, you and I would not have. I, I wouldn't be at this pod, podcast if uh, I wasn't in LinkedIn and some of the some of the social media platforms. Yeah. So I think it it, it broadens your uh, market. It helps broaden your market penetration. It, help, it helps establish your name, your brand recognition. And at the end of the day, it's it, it's it's important for you know. There's a sense of pride at Sante mm -hmm. of the structures we build of the projects that we're involved with and seeing those projects online, seeing those projects in Instagram and, and some of the social media presence that we have is really important for the 
company's culture. Yeah, that's really good to hear, Alfonso. In fact, a quick story as we're getting close to wrap up here. Um, I actually think the way we reunited, because you know we've always respected each other, but we hadn't had much interaction, was through Instagram direct messaging, through mm-hmm. social media person. And then I, well, here's my email. And then I got an email from you. And then we set up a virtual meeting. And then here we are. Um, communicating then on LinkedIn and and setting up the podcast. So it, it's been a great connector, not only for past relationships, but there's a number of people I've met that, you know, when I bumped into them at a show or a conference, hey, we met each other through Twitter. We met each other through Instagram or LinkedIn. It's really fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, believe it or not, I, I think we've, we've gone a little over an hour here. I, I actually believe if you're okay with it, that we should do another podcast sometime this year on one or more of these topics. So maybe I'll circle back with you about that. That'd be great, John. Truly enjoyed it. Yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm John Wheaton, the host of the Creating Structure podcast. He is Alfonso Lopez, the CEO of Sentech. And Oh, what a fascinating guy you are and fascinating discussion. I love your thoughts about leadership, engineering as art, your learning journey, um, the whole thing. There's so many more. I, I would love to speak to you just about your experience immigrating from South America to the United States. There was just so much content. Um, we couldn't even get into that. So um, I'll be putting your uh, LinkedIn contact information, your website, all those things in the show notes. Uh, there'll be additional ways for our audience to contact you. But in the meantime, be well, and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, John. Have a, have a good day. You too. Thanks. Bye.